Once I learned that no one really remembered what being a true beginner was like when it came to coding, I realized that I had an opportunity to teach other people where the beginning was. I know sometimes, culturally, socially, it's very hard for experienced engineers to say, I don't know how to do that. I have learned more about how systems work from observability tools and data than from someone explaining it to me. Hi, I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Shelby Spees. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or OlliCast, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. OlliCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OlliCast. I definitely got here through a series of accidents wherein I learned that I was really good at learning. So I learned to code maybe only five years ago, and the resources were really hard to understand. And like probably most people who've learned to code in the past five, maybe even 10 years know that the resources can be pretty academic. I remember reading a book and the second chapter was on recursion, and I was like, I don't know what this is, and I don't know how I got here. So once I learned that no one really remembered what being a true beginner was like when it came to coding, I realized that I had an opportunity to teach other people where the beginning was. So I've kind of got into DevRel in order to teach people that it's okay not to know, and that it's okay to really be at zero. And like, what does it look like to know absolutely nothing about DevOps? Well, like, just look at me and we'll do it together. <laughs> You're like a talk show host, the talk show host of software. Yeah, I want to be the Ricky Lake. <laughs> Let us adventure to this faraway land where the natives speak in ones and zeros. <laughs> I mean, that, that aligns a lot with my experience too, is I remember just sitting down to do tutorials or, or reading textbooks and, and being like, this isn't starting from zero. This is starting from some place beyond where I'm at. And so that's been a lot of my career too, is just trying to bridge that gap from, I've never thought about where software comes from. That's definitely what you did here at Honeycomb. Like you showed up and Liz being Liz, uh, you know, is DevRel for a particular segment of people. And then Shelby comes up and is like, but what if we don't know everything from Google, you know, and brought us along that. Yeah. I tweeted the other day that like when I read the SRE book, I didn't know what a load balancer was. Oh, honey. Oh, I forgot. I thought babies knew that what load balancers were. It took me ages. I thought everybody knew that. <laughs> it took me so long to figure out what a load balancer was. <laughs> what? Oh, and it's like it sounds self-explanatory, except if you've never thought about like, you know, when you type Google.com into your browser, what happens and the whole like going back and forth. And if you've well, never one server. One golden server out there in the cloud. Yes. And it answers all of your requests. I'm a big fan of that golden server. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like when an alien comes to Earth and you have to explain like what everything is. And that's kind of how I felt learning all this stuff. But, um, you know, before I, I tell my whole life story, like, Katie, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes. Hello. I am Katie Farmer. Pronouns she, her. I am the technical community manager at Circle CI. And I'm just very excited to be here talking to y'all today. You also have an adorable bow in your hair. I wish everyone could see this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's the only way I can deal with not being at conferences is just to jazz it up a little bit, you know? Compensate. Yeah. But yeah, like, Trudy, like what you were saying, you know, most people don't know what observability is. Most developers, most infrastructure engineers, most 
DevOps engineers don't have never heard of observability, don't know what it is. And so we need to meet them where they're, where they're at. And that's been Honeycomb's challenge since you first started talking about observability. And I think there's, you know, that whole segment in the CICD space as well. It's just like, I, as a developer, you know, I write my code and throw it over the wall. And even though the DevOps movement's been around for like 15 years now, there's still people who are scared of their build config. And so just making that more approachable is a great effort. Is that true? Are people really afraid of their build configs? Why? Because they're YAML. (laughs) Well, but YAML fucking sucks. That's just different. (laughs) You know, I'm a person who's pretty like neutral when it comes to all like programming languages and such, but all languages but YAML. Like (laughs) YAML is not a language. It's like the inbred dog of your, you know, redheaded stepchild. I I don't know what. Yeah. I think that a lot of times people, the first config they come across is like a highly customized five year old config. And then they say, oh, I can't do that. Like, this tool is too hard to use. And obviously, not only has, like, the product changed in the amount of time, and, like, no one has done an overhaul of this config in a certain amount of time. I think it has more to do with, like, not maintaining your config file and not auditing it and, like, keeping it up to date. It's, I mean, sure, you say this all the time, that, like, your build and deploy process is, like, the least loved code in any organization. And so it, it grows a lot of barnacles and it becomes very hard to read it and debug it. And people forget that config is code, for starters. And one thing that I learned very early on in my career at Linden Lab was whenever you're editing config files, leave fucking detailed comments about why you put this variable and what it means because mm-hmm. you will forget. <laughs> and then you'll just be scared. Like six months later, you'll be looking at a config file and you're like, I wrote that. What did I mean when I wrote that? (laughs) I still think that about like college essays I wrote that were about, you know, The Great Gatsby, which is not a subtle book. And I read the paper and I'm like, what am I talking about? Like, but having an English degree means you're like really good at making things up. Semiotics, man. Just like reread your present context. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. I wonder if like that, I mean, my background is in linguistics and like social science and having to just explain everything I did as I went along. Um, and then I learned eventually that like, I'm not good at remembering like why I did a thing. And so I went into programming, just documenting and commenting and, and writing like really strong commit messages, like for my own benefit, because like, I'm not even talking about me six months from now, but it's like me five minutes from now, I have no idea what I was doing. Most of my get commits from early heading over just like, Fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> fuck Terraform. <laughs> nope, fuck this harder. It's just like not detailed. <laughs> At Circle CI, when people use Circle, like the most common like Git message I see is fixing Circle. Fixing <laughs> Circle in their like PRs, which just makes me happy, you know? <laughs> and, and that's how you have to debug your build too. I mean, I've been there. And like what I experienced on teams before is this sort of learned helplessness among devs where traditionally they're not given access to, you know, the update, the build config or any of that. And so they can't debug it. And then even if they do get access, they've never been allowed to before. It becomes this like scary thing. And it's like, no, it's it's not that different from regular code. And especially with tools like Circle, you just edit it and run it and it's an external dev environment. Yeah. Almost nobody configures their shit from first principles. It is all cargo culting. Mm-hmm. It's chains of cargo cults. And literally, I'm sitting here thinking, have I? No, I have never like begun configuring my SQL by reading the man page and like right. selecting the correct variables. <laughs> Fuck no. You take the defaults. If they don't work, you Google something. 
you copy paste it, you try again, you swear at it, you kick it, mm-hmm. and rinse and repeat until it somehow completes. Like that's 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 a scientific method. These things do not, they're not designed, they evolve. Depending on where people are, like as developers, like what they work on, sometimes the people who are in charge of the config can be a little precious with it, right? Like the people who wrote it are like, don't change anything. Oh yeah. But I think it's because they feel that it's fragile or that their understanding of it is fragile. Well, yeah, it's just like we used to, we used to be with production systems. Like mm-hmm. I got it to work. Nobody touch it <laughs> for the next year. Like don't touch it. Like it's working now, but we don't know how we got it to this place. And we don't know what will happen if it breaks again. I have a confession to make that I've totally been that person. Just like nobody touch anything. We're code frozen for the rest of Q4. <laughs> like don't change anything. And like even at the time, I mean, I saw, you know, the commits on main getting backed up and the I felt the pain of like those giant deploys and stuff. But I was still, I was like, oh, don't change anything. And I had to unlearn that. And so it's like, I know it's possible. I've done it. It's deeply ingrained in us to slow down when we feel scared. When we feel nervous, when we feel anxious, we slow down and try to get control, right? It's encoded into our DNA. Like We balance, right? On two wobbly little feet, we're just like, ah, falling, (laughs) slow down. But the problem is that with software, that's the wrong impulse. Mm -hmm. Because with software, I think we have to have a different metaphor where it's like a heartbeat, right? Mm -hmm. You need your heartbeat to be pulsing like Mm -hmm. regularly to just clean the system you know get all the oxygen pumping clean everything out you do not want your heart to just like save it all up and go (gasps) (laughs) yeah right like but you need it going yeah i thought of the most ridiculous metaphor the other day where it's like your your business is a car and it's driving and a code freeze is putting one of those wheel locks on your car (laughs) the thing that like the theft prevention thing yeah and your devs are sitting in the back seat, and your car's still driving. <laughs> you just can't change direction. Like people think they're putting on the brakes, but they're not. Your business still yeah. is running. Your services are still running. And if you can't make changes, then you know your hands are tied. You know, I actually just read something from one of my colleagues this morning that was like a really just a, a nice sentence that I liked, and they said, uh, "Big changes require small changes," which I just liked as this idea of like, you know, I think especially. Because I, I went to a boot camp and they were pretty or Ruby focused, they definitely kind of hammered home agile, you know, like do things in these small pieces. It's really hard to do, it turns out, because like you said, it's it kind of feels unnatural to us because I'm afraid to do everything, right? I'm like, when you're new, you're like, oof, what will break? What will happen? And I think that there's some there's some power in maybe making your developers feel safe. If they mess up, they mess up small too. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy having a culture where you celebrate people the first time you bring down production. It's like your first blood, man. Like you're not a real warrior until you've brought down prod. I think there's a confidence gap there that a lot of people have. And, and it, I think that's that's like one of those things we talk about, you know, what makes a senior engineer. And I think that's one of those like, unfortunate hazing rituals almost that you need to learn that like, yes, you're going to break things. Or even as like a beginner, it's like you learn that the red error message, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It means you have an opportunity to fix it. Well, there's a confidence gap. Sometimes there can also be an overconfidence gap. Oh, sure. There's both sides of the line, you know, and that's why this is interesting and hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To me, there's a little bit of a gap too with like, you know, regular, like I'm learning to code. And then once you get into DevOps, it feels like 
by DevOps, I think you mean reality. Once you yes. get deep into production <laughs> code, that's different. Yes. When you realize there's not just like I would I'm going to make my own metaphor here, which is like, right, I have an English degree and most of that was just reading books and then writing down what they were about. Yeah. And that's like learning to code in a boot camp, right? Like I read it and here I go, I wrote some of it. Isn't it pretty? Isn't it great? It compiles. It's yeah. lovely, you know, but what are the real world impacts of that code? Ooh. Exactly. Right. And, and then once it got into like all this tooling, like, honestly, that's the thing. And like, it's missing from bootcamp curriculum because they don't have time to teach it. And then you're like, okay, well, um, I wrote this really nice Ruby class and they're like, cool. But like, you're not in charge of that. Yeah. You're in charge of like deploying or whatever it is. And I think that we don't have the same learning resources. For- yeah. But like kids who go through college don't learn fuck all about this either yeah no they don't either nobody does you're correct nobody teaches the tooling and that's yeah but i almost don't know that it can be taught it's constantly changing there is no canonical like anointed set of tools yeah it's in a constant state of flux production systems can't really be taught it's it's the real world you know it's like you kind of just got to throw people in the deep end and offer them your a pull so when they start to drown you know like it's the only way i know to teach people Mm -hmm. yeah there's i have not yet found a way to learn about complicated systems without being deep in a complicated system where you kind of it has to be nerve-wracking because it has to be real Mm -hmm. you know there is no simulator for this shit maybe someday there will be i don't know i think that you know living on the knife's edge is kind of part of the charm of production systems Mm -hmm. knowing that what you do has an impact like i find it very hard to motivate myself to write code or just like write something like why like why would I do that like what is the problem I'm trying to solve I'm a little too far over on that side of the scale right I can't you know I wish I could write code for fun I can't I need a problem to solve Mm -hmm. yeah I I feel like the most success I've had like as a you know developer advocate or even now as a community manager is like finding out that what people don't understand about a product is usually like an underlying philosophy that no one has explained to them say more about that So I, like, we'll go back to, like, Shelby and I were talking about load balancers, right? Like, and I tried to just Google what a load balancer was on my, like, second day at InfluxDB. I was like, people keep saying this, and I don't know what this means. So I'm just, but when I Googled it, what comes up is just a list of products. Sometimes you learn a product and how to maybe integrate the product, but not what it does. So I could say, like, I tried to set up Kafka Mm -hmm. and was the saddest person, much like Kafka. Uh-huh. And English major uh, joke. Yeah. <laughs> but still didn't know what it was for. And like, I didn't know what problem I was solving with the tool. I just learned the tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was very much my experience where it was like, okay, there's all these products and I can maybe map the product name to like this terminology that I just learned. But I don't know like the so what of like, why do I need this? Why do I care? Mm-hmm. Why would people choose one over the other? Where does it fit into the system? And like, I'm very much, I'm a systems thinker almost to a fault where like, Sometimes I can't make forward progress until I understand where things fit in like the overall picture. And it, you know, it slows me down and it's very frustrating sometimes. And so when like Google's search results are basically just a bunch of ads and it's like, this doesn't help me make sense of the problem this thing is trying to solve. And I mean, yeah, you can like turn to your coworker, Slack your coworker and be like, okay, help me understand this. But when you're like the expert, you know, when you've been doing things long enough, you forget what the hump of like learning that initial part is. And so I think, you know, Katie, 
we've been working in tech for like a similar period of time. And so, um, and I think that's where like our perspective is really valuable because we, we remember how that, that pain of like having to learn a thing for the very first time. Yes. Recent pain is the most important pain. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so I try and hold on to that when I talk to people about observability and throughout my career, I've had moments of like, wow, when did I even learn that thing that I'm able to like just rattle off now? And when I tell people like structured events and it's like, okay, wait, wait, first principles, how, why would, you know, a CS student care about structured events or something like that? And not everybody, I don't need to explain it that way to everybody, but my ability to explain it that way it allows me to like meet people where they're at and so I'm saying all this it's like I'm not trying to pat myself on the back I have to remind myself that that's valuable (laughs) yeah same and I think part of the difficulty for me in learning tooling learning the real world is that it's all very contextual right so it's like this probably happens with honeycomb a lot. I assume it happens a lot with circle in most places I've worked, which is that someone will say, okay, I think there's something wrong with circle. And then they'll give me a list of like the seven or eight different, like tools, services, languages that they're using. And you have to figure out where the problem is. And it's like somewhere in the intersection of these 400 things. Integration bugs are the hardest bugs to debug. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Where does it live? Mm-hmm. Where does it live? I, I've i never heard of half of these things and I don't know what they do. So let me you know, try and figure out what they do. And you can learn very quickly what products map to like what, you know, what systems and what problems they're trying to solve usually. But it's like, there's definitely sort of a cliff that you have to like climb before you, you're able to get to that point where you can help people with that stuff. So, yeah. but it's really, it's like getting thrown in the deep end on that is one of the best ways to learn the entire DevOps ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, that's the only way I've done it. And, you know, I think in that way, Charity is absolutely right that like, the only way I have successfully learned any tooling is by someone kind of throwing me into the middle of it and being like, mm-hmm. figure this out real quick. Yeah. And I think, you know, I hesitate to like tell people to dive into the deep end or whatever on things because I don't want to put people in a situation where they're going to flounder or fail. But at the same time, like, how do we balance that that learning that first time people encounter the real world, making sure that they both can experience it enough and, and interact with it enough to actually learn how things work yeah. without setting them up to fail. Yeah. So I just have this like a very fond memory of going to the public pool when I was very little and my mom would go into the deep end and put her hands underneath me while I practiced swimming. And like, that's kind of what you want mm-hmm. is like, you do need to be in the deep end, but you don't want to feel like unsupported. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's a lot of like setting up people for success or failure is the support there. Mm-hmm. This is something I'm really excited about. Like at Honeycomb, we're investing in the design side, and Charity's talked about this already, sort of publicly. And I think there's so much in observability that supports this first experience in, in production and this first experience on a new project, on a new service in production. You know, when you change jobs and all of your experience, you know, a lot of it stays relevant, but for anything that's domain specific, that's specific to this company, you don't have any of that. And so I, now that it's possible to like make that learning process better for people, it's such a waste to not have good observability. Yeah. It's like, 
you have money and you're like setting it on fire for every hour that your engineers are like spinning their wheels and like having to ping people on Slack. Like, what does this thing mean again? Where does it live? Like, yes, like have really good documentation, comment your code, make sure your abstractions make sense and, and, you know, are very well curated. And all of that is a worthy effort and observability supports that knowledge transfer, you know? Yeah. I remember when I first started learning about observability, I definitely heard the word, but I just thought it meant you can see it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was way less specific than it is. Mm-hmm. And then when I started actually learning it and using open telemetry, stuff like that, I was like, oh, this actually makes a ton of sense. Like, what would you do if you couldn't see this data? Mm-hmm. Like, how long would it take you to get here? Would you ever get here? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And so when I was in, in college, my wife and I both worked for the university. She worked as a programmer and I worked in like kind of the IT help desk. But there, and I'm sure other people in like academia can call in or whatever, <laughs> there, it's so bad. The education systems need observability and DevOps tooling really badly and don't have it. And they just have like this house of cards. And at the time they had literally one programmer. It was my wife. She had graduated the year before, you know? (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I think about the huge benefits of observability when it comes and it seems like such a simple solution, but it's an unknown concept. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's people who, like for me, I didn't live in the world of metrics and logs for a very long time before I discovered observability. And so I was just like, oh, this is great. Why wouldn't I want this? And I think there's sort of a contingent of people who've spent years and years and they have the sort of scars of having to debug things where you just have some squiggles on a dashboard and some tailing some logs or whatever, or trying to search through a mountain of logs and find this needle in a haystack. And if you weren't the person originally wrote the code, you have no idea how to debug it unless you're like that wizard who's been around long enough that, you know, like when the squiggles look like this, it's Redis (laughs) or whatever. And there's, there's no way to teach people that. And that's the thing where I'm just like, it's a huge waste. Like, yes, that experience is super valuable, but we could just skip all of that (laughs) and then let people debug things better. Yeah. So I think I heard once that like you can and should use your gut instinct, Mm -hmm. but you can also teach your gut instinct. Like you can hone it so that it is better. So that like when you look not just at the shape of a graph, but when you look at the data, you go like, I have a feeling this is related to Redis because of, and then you actually have a reason, you know, (laughs) because the last time this happened, it was Redis or the last time it happened, no one found it for three months. And then it was this other thing. Like, I like the idea that like, there's some instinct involved that can be learned over time so that you become, you know, more like Liz. (laughs) And, And this is something interesting about doing what I like to think of doing DevRel backwards, which maybe Shelby, you can weigh in on, which is that I thought, like you get into DevRel once you are Kelsey Hightower and you're like, I've had all the ideas and now I will evangelize those ideas. And I feel like I did it backwards. I was like, I have no experience and no knowledge, but you can learn with me. Mm-hmm. And so it was definitely felt like I was doing it a little bit backwards in that way. Mm-hmm. I'm really heartened to see communities like Egghead who bring in sort of beginner programmers and learners who will develop content and deliver it very sort of early into their careers. And and so we're starting to grow DevRel from this like early learner community. And I think it's awesome. You know, like I that's sort of where I've 
been in a lot of my teaching career is like it started I was in high school and I really liked French class and I was good at grammar I wasn't great at vocabulary but with some of my classmates you know really struggled with grammar and so my French teacher would send me out in the hallway to tutor them on the grammar section but unfortunately this was during the vocabulary review and so I wouldn't do as well on the vocabulary tests but I got to help my classmates do better on the grammar side and and so that's how I learned it. Hey, I really like tutoring. And, you know, I dove into the deep end on that in, in college and afterwards I, you know, taught English for a while. And so you don't have to be the expert. You don't have to have written the book on a thing in order to teach it. And sometimes beginners are the best people to teach a thing because they remember all those pitfalls. It wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I really like that as a philosophy that you can kind of like, you just bring people with you along the like learning journey. It's easier said than done though. Like I'm an introvert. I cannot learn something new and like perform social interaction at the same time. Or like I'm someone who, if I need to work my brain, I need to have no distractions, nothing in my visual like frame of reference or anything. Like I, I need to learn it on my own and I don't really learn from other people either. Like I can't, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a process, I guess. Yeah. I have very strong learning preferences. I don't, um, one of the big struggles for me in learning to code was that I don't do really well with like learning from videos. Oh yeah, I can't do shit with videos. It's so hard for me to pay attention. Same. Anything that has an audiovisual track, honestly, is just distracting to me. Yeah. It has to be written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, I have a degree in reading. Just write it down for me. Like I'll figure it out. <laughs> but I think too that like I, I like making things in different mediums because I know there are people who prefer that. But I think too that like even just being a beginner in some ways helps experienced developers who are a beginner in the area feel better about it. Mm-hmm. Because I think as I'm sort of like doing community outreach now and like, you know, my job before was a little bit more on the, let me show off what the product can do side. And now it's a little bit like, let me show off what our users can do. And I'm like happy to let them teach me how to do something and to let them be beginners. I think it's, refreshing for them to have someone be like, well, I don't really know how to do that. Can you show me? And it makes them feel better about learning new things also, Mm -hmm. because I know sometimes like, you know, culturally, socially, it's very hard for experienced engineers to say, I don't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very lucky that in my first job, I got to organize a workshop on the library I was helping build um, for the users of that library who were PhD holding rocket scientists, like literal rocket scientists, aerospace engineers. And so I'm surrounded by people who are like, I mean, I I think at that point I had been at that job for like nine months of my first full-time office job and um, teaching these people who've like 30 years of experience in their field. They're like big names. And I got to not only teach them, but I got to have meetings with some of these people where they're learning this thing for the first time and they're asking the question that I'm like forming in my head. And it turns out like everybody is a learner at some point in time. Sure, People change jobs, people change projects people always are going to have gaps in their knowledge that they have to fill. And so just for me, it's just like, I'm so passionate about information accessibility because like, there's always going to be somebody who can benefit from that. And whether, you know, they've been around for a couple of weeks or they've been around for 30 years. And so it's just like, my whole thing with observability is it's another form of information accessibility that speeds along that process. I have learned more about how systems work from observability, like tools and data, than from someone explaining it to me for 
45 minutes. Say more about that. Something that's that was really hard for me to understand is I would say like, okay, I know what our product is, right? Like it's Circle CI. We do the thing. We pass the builds. But understanding the entire system, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, well, you, that's impossible. Mm-hmm. But when you see something go wrong in an observability system, you're like, suddenly I'm like, oh, I can see a map. Mm-hmm. I can see a map. A lot of this is about taking the shit out of our heads and making it like democratically accessible. Yes. You know, because anyone who's been working on systems for a long time has this mental model of the system that might be incredible. This is why it really helps to be, you know, an early engineer, be someone who put it together in the first place that we rely on all the time, even though production is always shifting, always changing. Any map that you have in your head is going to be out of date, I assure you. (laughs) And when you can take that out of your head and put it into a tool where you can then interrogate it, number one, it's so much less of a cognitive burden on you. Yes. Um, Number two, it's more accurate (laughs) and up to date. (laughs) Number three, it's available to other people too. So, you know, we can either have our dirty cash in the head, right? Our own out-of-date model of the system, or we could put some labor into, you know, increasing our visibility into the system so that we can assemble an actual up-to-date view that we can then interact with and so can the rest of our team. And it's it's a better world. Yeah. I remember seeing my first graph of like, oh, here's all the services that were touched in that request. And here's where the error happened. And I was like... Terrifies you the first time you see that. You're like, oh, what the fuck? Who put that there? Why did it go there? Yeah. This is happening every day, thousands of times a second. Yeah. You're having that model laid out in front of you is really like, for me, it was just like a game changer. Like I felt like I am kind of a systems thinker. And when I can't visualize the system, I get stuck. Like Shelby was saying, I sometimes have a hard time moving forward. Totally. And then you just see it in front of you and you're like, Oh, well now I don't have to, I can see the system. And I know like that makes it easier to navigate. What are you optimistic about? Where do you see progress? What do you think is going to become better for people this year? So one thing that I think about a lot and is the adoption of observability and sort of like, you know, even CICD tools like regionally, right? So companies that are based in San Francisco almost always have them. But if I go to DevOps Days Nashville, a lot of those companies are just beginners in DevOps. Like they're just getting on board. Seriously? Yeah. In my experience going to conferences, it has been very regional with like adoption just because they haven't had access or the funds or a team. So my hope is that we keep casting that net wider. And like, you know, you don't need to be a tech company in order to use these tools. Like every place I've worked has been a product for developers. And I would really like to see these practices go out to you know, every business is kind of a tech business in some ways, right? They have a tech team. And I would love to see them just become more accessible to those smaller teams who have fewer resources. Yeah, Every business is now a tech business. I've been thinking about this a lot too. I honestly, I have this rant that's been boiling up in in my head for a couple of days now about the colossal failure of our entire technical management class. Let's put it that way. Because you talk to engineers, it's very difficult to find a dozen engineers who are not convinced that CICD is the way and that they should have automatic deployments. And yet it's very difficult to find a dozen companies who have let them do it. And this to me is like fucking managers, man. It's all our fault. Yeah. I wonder a lot about like how much of a burden is on a single engineer 
to justify this like you know, engineers can move mountains. I have a lot yeah. of confidence in, you know, engineer but it's the engineering managers and directors and VPs. It's their fucking job. It's their one job is to make sure that their time is being spent on the right things. Yeah. And it's hard not to say that this is not the right thing, <laughs> given how shitty most of these pipelines. All right, I'm going to start ranting this a whole different podcast. So like, yeah. let's, let's wrap it up here. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming, Katie. It was really nice to have you. Yes, thank you, Katie. Thank you both. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest in this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.